We just prayed together uh, through the adapted words of George Herbert, prayer before preaching. Uh, so we are going to look into the Word now, Acts chapter 14. I invite you to turn there if you're using the Pew Bible. It's found on page 923. But uh, even before I do that, I want to point out to Jim and Lydia Kohlmeyer. We've stood several times this morning, but you guys mind standing one more time. Today is Jim and Lydia's 62nd, 62nd wedding anniversary. So, praise God. <laughs> praise God. Look now at the Word of God with me. And let's read from Acts chapter 14 as the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas uh, comes to a close as this passage finishes. Now at Iconium, they entered together into a Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, He allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, yet He did not leave Himself without witness, for He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness." Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium 
And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained there no little time with the disciples. So reads God's Word from Acts chapter 14. And from chapter 13 into chapter 14, in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas turn a ministry corner As you listen, and if you were here last week, you may hear that change. You may hear the turn of the corner. A turn of a corner that helps us grow in our understanding of gospel life and ministry in our world still today. And friends, that's where we're headed. We're going to finish with just some very basic, simple, almost too simple suggestions about living for the gospel and defending it in our present day. We run into many of the same things that Paul and Barnabas ran into here in Lystra, especially. And that's where we're going to finish today. So we want you to just track with us on that course and recognize that this is a corner that Paul and Barnabas themselves turned from chapter 13 to 14, as Luke records it here. The dissimilarity of their ministry experience in Lystra as compared to Antioch last Sunday And even Iconium, which is the first few verses of chapter 14 here, the dissimilarity of their ministry experience in Lystra from these other two cities helps us see that there really are, really are many approaches to ministering the gospel, even though the message itself never changes. Paul takes different tacks with different people. He goes different ways depending on who he's talking to, but always sharing the very same message of sins forgiven through the sacrifice of Christ alone. But we also see that the responses in each of these cities and and even the combined responses of several cities together that we read about here just a moment ago can take such a similar direction here that I think this passage can also help us see that the sort of heightened opposition that they faced back then is still today a likely response that we would see to the proclamation of a clear and pure gospel. The things that Paul and Barnabas experienced then and there aren't fundamentally different from what we might experience here and now. Strange as though that might sound right now from the experiences that they 
had that we just read about, stay with me. That's what we're going to look at today. Through all of this then, we can and should discern that gospel ministry leads us on a faith adventure. It doesn't lead us immediately into a safe haven. We will get there, but first it leads us on a faith adventure that is fraught with trials and tribulations. With successes, yes, but also with many sufferings and many setbacks mixed in among the successes. Sometimes we might wonder which one is winning. Is it three steps forward and two steps back? Or is it two steps forward and three steps back? And at different times in the history of the church, it's been both. The ministry of the gospel leads us on a faith adventure that's fraught with trials and temptations that we might think And here's the key idea that we might think are inconsistent with the presence and power of a sovereign saving God. But they're not. Rather, He works in those trials and tribulations. He works around those trials and tribulations. He works in spite of those trials and tribulations, and he even works through them such that these missionaries could even say to these churches that they were forming, that were newly formed, we enter the kingdom of God only through many tribulations. Verse 22. We need to remember this today. We enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. We need to remember this today when we're so tempted to think that any opposition at all to gospel ministry, gospel living, couldn't possibly be okay with God. Can't be His best plan. That it must be the work of the enemy and that God would surely nullify all of these trials and tribulations. Or at least He might even neutralize them if if maybe we were just better servants, if we were better prayers or more faithful witnesses or the like, we can tell ourselves those things as though there's an inconsistency between the presence and power of God in gospel ministry and the trials and tribulations and suffering that the church experiences. Or worse than this, thinking they're inconsistent with one another and God would take them away if we were better Christians... Worse than that, we can actually transfer blame to something else. It's a particular temptation of the church right here in our nation to think that we surely wouldn't be facing all of these trials and tribulations if our American government were properly protecting our constitutional rights, our freedom of religion, our freedom of speech. We're entitled to these things as Americans. So when we receive pushback to the gospel, maybe it's just because our government is failing us. Well, friends, that's a tragic error that cripples the church. Don't believe that. We see here that the sovereign, powerful blessing of God can be present in the saving of souls and in gospel-affirming signs and wonders right alongside of serious, even brutal 
persecution of the gospel messengers. That's amazing. It's also instructive. Hopefully somewhat corrective to us in our day. And it's also not a little bit comforting. And the comfort comes not from confirming that we will face persecution, but in what we've seen already by assuring us that when we do, when we do, we can know that it doesn't reflect any absence of God or any weakness in His promises. We can know that from the Word of God and from the experience of the apostles in this passage. But let's just get into the text at this point and walk through it according to the outline that we're already suggesting here, not ordered by the flow of the text. So I'd encourage you, especially this morning, to have your Bible open in front of you because I'm not just going to walk through it. When we just walk through it in order, it's helpful in one way to have it open on your lap, but we're not going to do it that way this morning, and we're actually going to move through it more according to the themes that we just mentioned. Uh, We're going to state our outline as three propositions, and you can see them listed there in your bulletin. So this is the outline we're going to follow. Then we're going to be drawing essentially from the text as a whole as we do that. It will fall naturally into some sections, but we're not just going to move verse by verse, from beginning to end of Acts 14. The three propositions that will make up our outline this morning are these. God is present with His messengers, affirming their message. We learn that from this text. Second, God's messengers face persistent opposition in their work. And third, true messengers sense no incongruity in this scenario. True messengers sense no incongruity in this scenario. So let's move through this outline together with Acts 14 open in front of us. First, God is present with His messengers, affirming their message. And this proposition is undeniable here. We see it in the very opening verse of the chapter. Verse 1, look at it. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. That's a promising topic sentence to Acts 14. God was saving people in yet another new city, Iconium. Luke has made it clear throughout this history of the early church That saving people is God's direct work. One of the clearest ways that he said it was in last week's passage, chapter 48 of, I mean, sorry, verse 48 of chapter 13, where he said, As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I love that statement. It makes the work of salvation clearly God's work. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And obviously, he appointed a great number of both Jews and Greeks here in Iconium because he saved them through the ministry of the Word. God's Word was preached in such a way, Luke records here, and he's preaching in the synagogue, so the in such a way, we can just refer back to chapter 13 and that extended record of the message of Paul in the synagogue there in Antioch. Probably a very similar way at the synagogue here. He preached in such a way that the Word of God penetrated their hearts and produced saving faith. God working through His Word, saving people, affirming the message. 
God is present with His messengers, affirming their message through the saving of souls. The number one way He proves His presence. Luke records it again down in verse 21 of this same chapter in his single sentence summary of their work in Derby. They made many disciples there, Luke records. So that's one way we see him present and affirming the, me- the ministry, the, the message. But we also see God's presence and power with these messengers in other ways in this text. How about their attitudes? Do you notice that as you work through this text? How about their attitudes? Remember how they left Antioch last week? Just the last few verses there of chapter 13? The Jews had stirred up opposition against Paul and Barnabas. We read in verse 50 there such that they shook off the dust of their feet against that city. Verse 51, following Jesus' instruction as He sent out His messengers, if they don't receive the message, shake the dust off your feet, move on to the next place. That's what they did here in Antioch. But then the text records in verse 52, they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit as they moved on. They just left this place where conflict had been kicked up opposition had been experienced they shook the dust off their feet but they went forward with joy filled with the holy spirit that was the lord's presence with them that's his affirming his presence and power in their own hearts his spirit bearing witness with their spirit that they are doing the work he's called them to do we see it again here in several ways Even after feeling some opposition now in a new place, Luke records that they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. Verse 3, right here in Iconium. Now they're in a new place. They just shook the dust off their feet. They come into a new city. And very early on, they remained for a long time speaking boldly. Their attitudes were indomitable. Luke even suggests here, by the way that he puts it in this passage, that their remaining to speak boldly for the Lord was precisely because they were facing opposition there in Iconium. You see it? The the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, verse 2, against the brothers. So, verse 3, they remained for a long time speaking boldly. Opposition was kicked up against them, so... They stayed and addressed it. The opposition was the reason they stayed. They wanted to unpoison the minds of those who had been poisoned by these unbelieving Jews. They wanted to see saving belief. They wanted to see the power of God again, and they recognized what their responsibility was. The fact that they were receiving opposition doesn't make any difference to them. It might shape how they talk and where, But they're on mission. And they're going to stay and faithfully proclaim the word even, even as they're feeling the opposition. Only God, only God can enable such courageous compassion. We see it again after they flee Iconium, another city where they fled. They continued to preach the gospel, we see there in verse 7. We also see it in Paul when he was stoned and left for dead outside Lystra. Verse 19. We move right on into verse 20 where we read that he rose up 
and went right back into the city and spent the night there before he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. A little later in the message this morning, we're going to actually put up a map so that you can see the traveling between these cities because it's significant. Derby was about 60 miles from Lystra. Paul is stoned and left for dead. Gets up. The way it's recorded, it doesn't sound like it was a miraculous raising from the dead, like he actually had died and then was brought back to life. But it appears as though he was unconscious. He came to. He went back into the city with his friends. They spent the night and then took off on a 60-mile journey the next day after he had been stoned to the point where he was perceived to be dead. What did Paul even look like as he made that journey? We can read that they fled from Iconium and we can think, wow, were they cowardly? That doesn't sound cowardly to me. What an amazing thing, a 60-mile journey in that day, starting the next day afterward. We see it as they traveled through each of the cities as well, as they were returning back to the port city where they could sail off and go home, we can see that, that they went back through each of the same cities that they had just come through once again. Verse 22 says, Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to endure, and reminding them that it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. And also, verse 23, appointing elders in each of those cities. These brand new little churches in hostile areas. And they're praying and fasting and appointing elders as they come back through just probably a matter of weeks or just a few months later after their planting. Only God can enable this attitude. Only God can enable this outlook. How would we fare under such circumstances? We even see later in this text that when they came back around to Perga, right right near the end of the text, Luke makes a point of the fact that they preached the word there. That's the city from which John Mark left and went back home to Jerusalem a little bit earlier in Luke's narrative. And now Luke is making the point that when they got back to that city, maybe they hadn't preached the gospel there before because they were handling this situation with John Mark, but they surely did when they came back through at the end of the journey. But we also see in the experience of John Mark that it's possible under those circumstances to cave and run. Paul and Barnabas aren't doing that. The Lord enables that. His presence and His power were with them. But right alongside both of these, the the presence of God and the saving of souls and the attitude of the workers, right alongside both of these is God's endorsement of their work with miracles. That doesn't always happen in the book of Acts, but it's in the book of Acts where we see it on a number of occasions. He's backing them up with signs and wonders, the text says in verse 3. Non-specific ones right there, but then the dramatic one that stands at the center of this story in verses 8 through 10. The healing of a man who could not use his feet, was crippled from birth, and had never walked. How many different ways do you have to say that he was lame? There's a threefold description of his weakness here. He couldn't use his feet, he was crippled from birth, and he had never walked. And yet Paul, discerning faith and the movement of the Spirit, spoke to him saying, get up, and he sprang up, the text says. 
These miracles were the affirmation of the Lord on this work. We can get caught in the details of the miracles, and that's why I don't really want to this morning. We can could, we could unpack the experience of this lame man as he was, as he was healed, but really we want to see what the Lord is doing here. He's, he's underscoring the work of the apostles by affirming the truth of their message with miracles. Their miracles were an affirmation of the Lord who, and I love the way Luke puts it here in verse 3, the Lord who bore witness to the word of His grace. This is God's own witness to the truth of His word. I love how that's stated. Who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. God is present with His messengers, affirming their message in these three ways, salvation, attitude, miracles. Even so, proposition number two, God's messengers face persistent opposition in their work. Side by side with this dramatic enabling and affirmation is an almost unimaginable suffering. The Jews who heard Paul's exposition of Old Testament promise and fulfillment were so agitated that they weren't satisfied just expressing their disapproval. They weren't satisfied just disinviting him and Barnabas to their synagogue. They stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds, verse 2, poisoned their minds against these two. That's a, that's a powerful image. They poisoned them to the point where they wanted to mistreat them and stone them, verse 5, and that's the plan and plot that Paul and Barnabas became aware of and caused them to leave Iconium. Let's not rush past those too quickly, though, because there's things we can discern according to our outline this morning that we want to know from this text. Unbelieving Jews here stirred up the Gentiles. It means they sided with the Gentiles against the Christians. We've been told that there is no religious divide in history like the Jew-Gentile divide. There's no ethnic divide in history like the Jew-Gentile divide. There's no cultural divide in history like the Jew-Gentile divide. But the Jews here in first century Iconium hated Christians even more than they hated pagan Gentiles. This is starting to sound like the story of Jesus all over again, isn't it? The two sided together there as well. And we're seeing it again now in express opposition to Paul and Barnabas and the first missionary team. And all this took place, all this took place with the Apostle Paul then on his first missionary journey, this level of opposition. So why do we suppose, why do we suppose that those who've carefully fashioned their own religious beliefs today would respond any less violently to a dismantling of those beliefs than these first century Jews responded when theirs was being dismantled? Why would we expect anything less when self-styled religious beliefs today 
are falsified by other kinds of truth claims. There will be a violent reaction. People react violently when the things that they have treasured are threatened. People don't like to be confronted with truth claims that expose their beliefs to be lies. That's one of the reasons why Christians have to address such matters with gentleness of spirit and humility. Because it's already hard enough to find out that your views might be false in a day where nothing is false if I want to believe it. People who don't like to be confronted or people don't like to be confronted with truth claims that expose their beliefs to be lies and the more deeply they treasure those beliefs and my friends, those beliefs are treasured deeply in our day. The harder it is for them to let go of them and embrace something profoundly different. So now the attitude of the messengers makes a great deal of difference in how effectively the message can be shared. That very response we see here in stunning ways in our text, the violent opposition. These unbelieving Jews who conspired with Gentiles, and let's get that slide ready uh, at this point, you guys, because I, I want us to see this on the map. These unbelieving Jews who conspired with Gentiles in Iconium were not even satisfied when Paul and Barnabas fled to smaller, lesser important cities like Lystra and Derbe. This is in the neighboring region of Lyconia, and we're in the province of Galatia. And you can see there that it wasn't just the Iconian Jews that were doing this. There were also some Jews from Antioch. Now, Iconium is 20 miles away from Lystra. So these Jews followed them some 20 miles southwest to Iconium. And then it wasn't just the Iconian Jews who did this. They were joined there by Jews from Antioch. All this is up at the top of the map there. Jews from Antioch, which is nearly 100 miles northwest from Iconium. These folks were serious. They hated this gospel message. And while it's there, look how far away Derby is from Lystra. That's the trip that Paul set off on the, the, the morning after he was stoned and left for dead. Roughly 60 miles there. That's a lot of mileage in the ancient world. And that's enough with the map. Just wanted you to see how this was going. These folks were serious. They, they hated the gospel message. And they hated its messengers. And they were determined to stamp it out. To stamp out both even if it meant they had to go on the road to do it. We think it's strange these days when we might get baited into affirming something that isn't a popular belief in our day. Wow, that level of hatred and despising of the truth goes a long way back. And these folks made their displeasure known <coughs> Excuse me, as, as Jews from these three different cities conspired together with Gentiles over great distances to bring this about. One additional element then of this conspiracy of unbelieving Jews and Gentiles, it's interesting. They were able to turn the Lystrans against Paul and Barnabas almost on a dime. Did you notice in the text that from one verse to the next, 
they are about to sacrifice to them as gods, and then they join in with the stoning. These Jews and Gentiles conspiring together were able to turn the Lystrans almost on a dime into joining in with the stoning of Paul. They perceived them to be Zeus and Hermes, the the chief god and his spokesman, as Luke makes clear here. But then they're ready to stone them when having their minds poisoned by untruths. There was a local legend, by the way, that I think added a bit to this whole situation and why it went where it went. A local legend that had been narrated by the Latin poet Ovid that told of Jupiter and Mercury visiting this area sometime earlier, disguised as mortals and blessing any who showed them hospitality. And evidently it took quite a while for anyone to show them hospitality. But they were richly blessed and the others were, were destroyed by flood, if I remember correctly. So these folks, when they saw what Paul did with the healing of this lame man, thought that Zeus and Hermes, the Greek equivalent of Jupiter and Mercury, had come to visit them and they weren't going to make the same mistake twice. They were going to be blessed by these guys. They were, going to, they were highly motivated to honor a visiting deity. But they could also be quickly, uh, quickly persuaded otherwise. So two quick things before moving on. First, we believe that these Lyconians were uneducated people. And you can see that. That's some of the explanation of their quick turning here. Likely even illiterate, some commentators say, and, and surely superstitious. But the, thing I, the reason I make that point is not so that we can understand better this turnabout and so forth. It's because Paul was still able to speak the gospel on their level. I think that's important. So we're going to come back to that in just a couple of minutes. Paul was still able to speak the gospel on the level of people who were behaving like that, were probably uneducated, even perhaps illiterate. And second, just to make note of this, it would have been nice, wouldn't it, if Paul and Barnabas could have understood the Lyconian language here? Clearly, this situation got out of hand as quickly as it did Verse 11, because the language barrier allowed for momentum to be generated towards sacrificing to Zeus and Hermes before Paul and Barnabas realized what was happening. And then they could barely stop it. So just a note for those who want to make, for instance, the gift of tongues normative. Even when God was affirming His message and messengers with signs and wonders explicitly in this text, He didn't give the gift of tongues just in order to skirt opposition or avoid misunderstandings. There was a purpose for that gift, namely a sign to unbelieving Israel that the age of the Gentiles had arrived. And this scenario didn't fit into that purpose. So even with the other signs and wonders he's giving, there were complications due to something that we could even know might have been avoided. I think that's not a sign of God's sovereign hand in giving and withholding according to his own will. Something interesting to note in this text. That also, though, moves us ahead to proposition number three. 
The messengers sense no incongruity in this scenario, this scenario that has God's present miraculous affirmation of their message and suffering right alongside of it in brutal ways. The messengers, true messengers, sense no incongruity in this scenario. They really didn't seem to struggle with it at all. When Paul was left for dead outside Lystra in verse 19, he didn't wake up and wonder, why is God doing this? Why is He allowing this? He just rose up and went back into the city. And as we see, took off on a 60-mile journey the next day. It was just part and parcel of the work. He and Barnabas did a similar thing on their return trip. They didn't avoid the different areas based on the fact that they'd faced persecution there. Rather, they returned through Lystra through Iconium, through Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them in the faith, and teaching them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. <coughs> Excuse me. And really, each of the examples that we listed earlier that show their positive attitude could be repeated here as evidence that they saw no incongruity between God being present and affirming of their work and facing harsh opposition in that work. Their joy when they left Antioch, their boldness with the non-believing Jews and Gentiles. They faced the same opposition Jesus faced in His earthly ministry. And they seemed to understand that that was just par for the course. In fact, as they returned to their home church and reported on all of this that had happened, they described all of it as what? Verse 27, an open door of faith to the Gentiles. This is what an open door looks like. Wow. An open door of faith to the Gentiles. That's their summary of what they'd experienced. But there's one more thing I want us to see that I referred to earlier that's also par for the course in this work. And this is where we can move towards seeing some example for ourselves in our day in how to represent the gospel, how to live it and communicate it. They communicated with everyone they met according to their need and according to their experience, according to their need and their experience. Their ability to understand and perceive the presence and power of God. His grace, His salvation. It was a listener-centered expression of the one unchanging truth that Paul and Barnabas offered in each of these places. You remember how deep Paul went into themes of promise and fulfillment as he preached at the synagogue in Antioch the passage we looked at last Sunday from Acts 13. But here, look how he addressed these uneducated Gentiles in Lystra. He meets them right where they are. And he introduces them to ways that they can see and know God's presence and power themselves. He doesn't take them into Old Testament texts and deep biblical theology. Except that he does, just in a different way. Rather, while they were pursuing their pagan worship rituals, he said to them here in verse 15, 
You should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Much like he'd say later on on the Areopagus in Athens over in Acts 17. Very similar route. He went there with those pagan unbelievers. Verse 16 continues on. In the past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Parenthesis again. He really didn't. But it could seem to them like he did. This is Paul accommodating the message. They've sensed a freedom that they're not sensing now as he proclaims the gospel. And so he lets them know God is patient. It's essentially saying the same thing we read later in the New Testament. God is patient, waiting for repentance. But he says to them, in the past, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Verse 17, yet he did not leave himself without witness. He was still making himself known, even then. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. That's Paul talking to these uneducated Lystrans the same, with the same message that he was preaching last Sunday to the Jewish synagogue in Antioch. It's God who does all this, Paul is saying to the Lystrans. In the midst of all the trial and hardship of life in this troubled world, Paul and Barnabas don't just recognize that there's no incongruity between the presence of God and suffering for them. They represent the same deep truth even to these unlearned listrans in ways that they could understand as they were introducing them to the living God. Rains from heaven that cause your crops to grow, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. That's the work of God. Guys, come to the living God. This should be especially helpful for us today. And it can be. Not only can we learn from Paul and Barnabas' whole experience here in Acts 14, each facet of it, as we've seen already this morning, we can especially, especially appreciate the sensitive listener-shaped way they expressed gospel truth here. We can learn from it. It's as though they are saying to the listerans, you guys, turn to the actual living God who made the whole world you're living in and, and even seems to let you use it for no cost at all. He shows you His presence and power and benevolence each time it rains and your crops grow. Each time you have a good meal, each time you enjoy any sort of gladness, He's behind it. You won't get that from Hermes or Zeus or anyone else in your pantheon of gods. That's what He's saying to these guys. These guys who we can already see were easily swayed talking them in language they can understand. Translate that for today. We might say something like, people, look around you. See how the world works. By the very complexity of its interconnectedness, 
you know it must have been designed by one whose intelligence is on a wholly different level than ours. But because it's understandable to us, and so perfectly suited not just for our survival, but for our satisfaction and even for our thriving, that intelligent God must be favorably disposed toward us. We could also say, see that, see, that, see, see that every species that depends on coupling to reproduce has a built-in capacity to do so. And for human beings, our emotions are even linked to that coupling process such that love is the best word to describe our joining. That can't be accidental. And notice also that human beings come with, with different skin colors, even though their inherent qualities are all identical. Surely it makes no sense then for one color of people to seek advantages over another for any reason at all. In fact, that wouldn't even make sense. Basic truths that our world needs to hear. It needs to hear from a place that is rooted in truth. On and on we could go with descriptions like that. Talking to our world today about the ways that this God, whom they don't know, is actually showing Himself all around them as a designer, as the Creator, even the Savior of of the very world they're inhabiting, the very world in which He's allowing them to live seemingly free of charge. And then as they grow interested, we can inform them that they don't actually live here free of charge. Not at all. In fact, they owe this loving, benevolent, creating, saving God their undivided allegiance. They were made to reflect His glory. They're part of this whole created order. And if they choose to live life, the life He's given to them, to pursue their own glory, they will be discarded in the end and never have the privilege of knowing Him personally or of experiencing His cleansing Or of entering into the joy of relationship with Him and with His people right here and now. And also then in the eternal future He's prepared for us where we'll finally be free of all of this evil and opposition and unbelief. That's how we can talk to this world. We can learn from Paul and Barnabas here at the end of their first journey just what it's like to be people of the gospel and also how to go about proclaiming and defending it in our present day, enjoying the presence and affirmation of God even as we experience the opposition Jesus and His apostles and His servants in every generation of the church have experienced before us. We need to consider the fact that some of the direct 
challenges to Christian belief, to, to gospel living in our day, provide the very context for our gospel witness. They're the place where our witness plugs in. Beliefs that fly in the face of truths that God has, has built into the very fabric and fiber of this world that are invisible to all, even those that they are visible to all, excuse me, visible to all, even those who don't believe in Him. The existential emptiness of same-sex marriage. The disturbing absurdities of fluid gender. The blind arrogance of racial prejudice. And the thinly disguised reversal of justice that we're calling critical theory. Each of these is just part of the pushback of this fallen world against the liberating truths of the gospel in our day. Like polytheistic mythology was for the Greeks back in Paul's day, like a suffering Messiah was for the Jews. These are just obstacles to the gospel that conspire to try to shout it down in our day like each of those obstacles tried to shout it down in their day. And just like the Spirit equipped Paul and Barnabas to address those issues in their day, He equips us to do the same in ours. He equips us. It's the same Spirit doing the same work. No hateful, red-faced shouting at the unbelievers of our day. Not even any complaining about how bad things are as we converse in our Christian huddles. Just an opportunity for the gospel. Honestly engaging with neighbors and friends who exhibit the same sort of self-important stubbornness that Paul and Barnabas encountered in the Jews and the sort of uninformed ignorance that they faced in the Gentiles. What we see here in Acts 14 on the heels of Acts 13 is that the Spirit can enable both of these in us in our day. And we face a very similar day. The Spirit can enable pleasant, insightful affirmations of God's presence and power in our world, just like Paul referring to his sending rains and enabling gladness there in Lystra. We can do things as Simple as expressing our thankfulness to God for the rains and for the sunshine. We can just mention our spouse with fond affection. You wouldn't have thought that would be an entry step to a gospel witness very far back, would you? But now, today, mentioning your spouse with affection can be the beginning of a gospel witness. Following in the steps of the Apostle Paul in Lystra. We can make reference to our sons and daughters. We can speak kindly to anyone whose skin is a different color than ours. Just speaking kindly, that's an entry point for the gospel. 
And as we do these things in faith, believing that God has placed the opportunity before us all the way from just a kind word of greeting to the explanation of the full gospel as He opens up the door to do that. As we do these things in faith, believing that God has placed the opportunity before us, we do so as we do so in intentional obedience to His Word. That is a beginning very similar to what Paul modeled for us in this text. That is a beginning. But it's also there that we need to end today. I'm tempted to preach a lot longer on this subject. It has fired me up this week. Um, And I commend it to you as a model, as an aim, as a point of prayer, seeking God on behalf of the church in this day to just stand up and speak the simple truths of the gospel lovingly shaped for the hearer. Be amazing to see what God could do in our day, wouldn't it? It's not going to remove the suffering. It's not going to end the pushback. But I bet we would see affirmations of His presence and power among us as we pursue that. Join me now, if you will, as we pray. And as I pray, musicians, please return to the platform and men who are going to help serve communion, please join me at the front. Heavenly Father, we thank you this day for your word of truth. We thank you for the experience of Paul and Barnabas in Iconium and Lystra and Derby, and then all the way back to Antioch in Syria, sharing with the church there the open door of faith to the Gentiles that they perceived through their travels. Oh, Father, help us to see open doors for the gospel in our day that can see through and past and sometimes around and over and under the opposition that gets kicked up. And I pray that our confidence in the truth might be such that we joyfully speak it, even knowing that it flies in the face of this present day's beliefs but knowing that it is entirely unloving not to speak it in our day. For truly, it remains the only way of salvation, even for those who currently are violently opposed to it. Help us to be the church for your glory in our day. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.